Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. Three billion. That's how many birds the U.S. and Canada have lost since 1970. That decline shows up among threatened species as well as among birds we might find in our backyards, like sparrows or woodpeckers. One way scientists track the size and health of bird populations is through bird banding, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Dave Russell. Russell is an associate teaching professor in Miami University's Department of Biology and co-founder of the Avian Research and Education Institute. He's also a master bird bander, which means he can work with federally protected birds as well as train others to become bird banders. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. How'd you get started with bird banding? I got started with bird banding because my wife, I am an avid birder, being out in the field looking at birds since I was four. Uh, but my wife doesn't see birds very well in the field. And I thought, wow, let's uh, do something in hand. And she's a neuroendocrinologist, so she tends to look at the finer scale of things anyway. And it was something we could do, we could do together. So uh, we started bird banding. Uh, station about uh, 20 years ago, 2004, at uh, Houston Woods. Well, in, in Houston Woods, I mean, for people that are listening that, that don't know about it, this is this is kind of a, a, a little bit of a unique island in in this part of southwest Ohio. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where that is and why that might be an important place to start a bird banding yeah, location? Yeah, Houston Woods is a fantastic place. It's basically, as you were saying, it's an island in the middle of a sea of agriculture. And from a bird's perspective, if you're a migrating bird, you're at 5,000 feet looking for some place to stop and refuel. It's that green oasis within a green oasis. And so we get a lot of migrant species that will then stop to refuel before they uh, head north or south, depending on which direction they're going. It's also near the university, so it's relatively easy to access to get to the banding station. But it also... Uh, one of the directives for the state parks, in addition to being for recreation, uh, it's also for conservation. Mm. Uh, and mm. so being able to collaborate uh, between the university and state park systems in habitat maintenance and monitoring populations, it was a natural fit. So Houston Woods has been a fantastic partner for the last 20 years. So what exactly do you do when you're bird panting? So. One of the, uh, as you're mentioning in the intro, uh, bird populations have, they, they've crashed in uh, the last 50 years. Now, not all bird populations are down. Mm. So things like waterfowl, duck hunters are actually um, some of the most important conservationists we have. And because of wanting to have healthy duck populations, duck hunters have maintained wetlands. And so a lot of bird banding is actually associated 
with fish and wildlife monitoring duck populations so that they don't over-harvest ducks. Hmm. Now, the other population actually that's up is raptors uh, with uh, DDT and some of the other uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons being off the market. uh, They have increased in numbers, though I I will say we're having some issues with some of the neonicotinamids now. So not all populations are down. So when you say we've lost 30% of of breeding birds in the U.S. in the last uh, couple of decades, what it really means is we've significantly lost more than that of some important groups like warblers and vireos and orioles. And while some might be up, uh, many, particularly our long-distance migrants, are just getting killed. And so bird banding was initially started to monitor populations, but... The problem with bird banding is you have to recapture them to read the band. Mm. Mm -hmm. So a band is a lightweight uh, aluminum bracelet with a social security number on it. And so a bird is assigned a unique social security number. We net them. Uh, We have about 40 giant hair nets, basically 40 feet long, 10 feet tall. And we capture the birds. We put on a band, and then it's like a visit to the doctor's office. So they are aged, they're sexed. We take a whole series of measurements. Birds then given a band, weighed, and off it goes. Uh, so it was in, it was initiated, wow, we've probably been banding birds for 100 years in, uh, in the U.S., but it, it has taken on uh, some really, uh, there's some important questions that it's able to tackle now. And so bird banding has kind of bifurcated. Hmm. We, we used to catch birds and hope to then catch it again uh, in Canada on the summering grounds so we can build that connectivity of, you know, is this bird going to Costa Rica or is this bird going to Guatemala or is this bird going to Ontario? But so few individuals are recaptured hmm. that it's very difficult to build that connectivity. So uh, there are... Um, some automated telemetry-based systems that we've been using the last couple of years for actually following uh, bird migration. But from the banding aspect, uh, one of the absolutely critical elements that's necessary when we talk about bird conservation is this ability to know survivorship. How many males, how many females, how many young birds, how many birds are heading south, how many birds are heading back north, uh, are all the adult birds dying on the wintering grounds and we're only getting young birds. And the only way you're going to get that information is by having the bird in hand. So this kind of bifurcation, there's an automated monitoring system now, but for bird banders, we're actually supplying that uh, in the hand, in the field, uh, survivorship, uh, aging and sexing for life history modeling uh, for the species. It's kind of like a census for birds. It, it's more exact than a census because it, it gives us the actual um, proportion of adults or young. Uh, but uh, there are other methods. Doppler radar will actually give you population mm-hmm. size or or migration size. Um, I mean, birds are giant sacks, or little sacks of water, so it actually shows up on the weather radar. Uh, <laughs> so they, they'll actually use that for, uh, uh, for monitoring the size of, of bird movements. 
Yeah, I'm, I, I, now I'm thinking of myself as a giant sack of water. <laughs> right. and I, I'm, I'm here with two of water, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice to have these sacks of water here talking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so thanks for that image that will never leave I know. me nowadays. Never gonna be. Every time you watch the weather, you go, that blue blob You blob could find me, me here on the Weather Channel. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, one of the things that, that I thought was really, it's been interesting about, as you've talked about this, I, I found myself thinking, okay, you've been in this game for 20 years, and the technology has certainly changed dramatically. I mean, how fast you could take a photo of something that's going through. And the fact that, that you can now start, you know, like you said, that radar can even detect these. And I'm just trying to picture, how in the heck does it differentiate even species as it's well, doing and, and that? that's, that's, where, that's remarkable. No, it, it, it can't differentiate species, but right. what it can differentiate is numbers. Uh, and again, you know, you watch the weather and it goes from green to yellow right, and all that. Right. Well, you can actually see uh, migrant birds in the evening coming up and oh. green to yellow, and then heading off in a direction on Doppler radar. You can go to the radar sites yeah. um, for that. What's necessary then is, particularly in these, uh, they're called migrant traps, these areas where uh, the birds, when they come across, um, they tend to funnel into because of habitat. Mm -hmm. You'll then have boots on the ground okay. in those spots saying, wow, it's white-throated sparrows that came in last night with a bunch of uh, Swainson's thrushes or, or something else. So that it requires some ground truthing to kind of look at the numbers that are there. So, so what happens with your data? I mean, so you're, you're, this, you're a pocket here. And there's, this is replicated all over the U.S. and over the world, I would imagine. So where does the, where does the data go and how is it used? It is. And, and this is where it's become a much more collaborative effort. And uh, we'll, we'll hopefully talk about MODIS in a little while, this uh, automated tracking system. And what MODIS has done has brought a, uh, a community both uh, from uh, scientific individuals to non so it, it, it covers the whole gamut of, uh, of people that are interested in bird conservation. And uh, bird banding is a very specific science or art form. And our data, all of the bands that I put on um, our birds at Houston Woods are assigned to me by the Bird Banding Laboratory. Uh, it's a USGS uh, department. And it used, it used to be in Patuxton uh, Wildlife. I think they're doing some moving right now. But uh, the Bird Banding Lab is... It collects all of the band data from U.S. and Canada. Mexico has its own banding uh, lab, uh, Columbia, uh, you know, and so there, there are other organizations that handle the branding in their, in their countries, but uh, the uh, banding lab handles U.S. and Canada. Well, I'll just go ahead and ask what MODIS is, since you've mentioned um, it. And the reason I'm so excited about MODIS is uh, Miami now has a MODIS tower. Uh, mm. We just put it up last weekend, oh, uh, cool. the weekend before last. And MODIS is M-O-T-U-S. It is an automated bird tracking system. It's uh, Birds Canada uh, is, the uh, I guess, the organizer for this. Uh, and a bird is fitted with a little uh, a nano tag. It's a, a harnessed little chip that uh, gives off a unique beep. Hmm. I guess cheap for each other. A little cheap. cheap, uh, cheap. Uh, oh, no, uh, I'm doomed. Yeah, you're it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rosemary sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically a bird is fitted with one of these um, uh, tracking units, and about every, depending on how you set it, but let's say for the sake of argument, every 10 seconds, it emits a unique code that oh, signifies cool. this individual is flying over. And so there is an array of antennal 
towers. There's probably 1,500 now that are spread from Chile to the Arctic Ocean. There's a heavy concentration in the eastern United States, but it's now in 35 countries and wow. it's spreading rapidly. And But basically, a bird, as it's passing from point A to point B, if it crosses over an area monitored by one of these towers, and they, they go roughly 30 kilometers space around them, uh, then it's just like when you go to Kroger's and you run your orange juice over. You know, 278 craft orange juice, and so this will say it's it's band number you know 683. Uh, it's just passed over at this height and going to speed, and so you can now where what we hoped to gain from banding was this connectivity. What we're gaining from Modus now is you can follow bird literally from Ecuador hmm. uh, across the Gulf. When it hits the uh, Gulf Coast, you can then follow it across Ohio, uh, across the Great Lakes, up to Hudson Bay. And so you can actually follow a bird from where it started to where it winds up. And what it allows you to do is actually determine, do they stop Mm. or do they not stop? If they stop, where do they stop? Is there a collection of birds that typically all go to the same area? So from a conservation dollar perspective, now you can, you can spend, rather than spending money uniformly across the landscape, you can say this area is of critical concern for migrating birds or this area is of critical concern. And we also are getting an understanding. We had assumed that birds stop, oh, let's say, every two to 300 kilometers on their way north. It might take two, two and a half weeks. What we're finding is, as many species, it's a time-sensitive migration. They hit the Gulf Coast, and then they don't stop till they hit Canada. Whoa. And so this has direct implications uh, from a conservation perspective. They have to have a strong refueling site in the Gulf Coast. If they've just crossed the Gulf of Mexico, they've got to be able to refuel, refuel quickly, and then be able to do the next jump, mm -hmm. as opposed to having eight stops uh, as you're going north. And, we're, and this is the sort of data that MODIS is now beginning to generate, and it's causing us to re-evaluate many of our suppositions about what we thought migrating birds did. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about birds and bird banding with Dave Russell. So, you know, I find myself having lots of questions that sort of emerge as you're talking about this. I mean, one, one question is, um, when you think about this, the new system that's in play, I mean, does, does that start to remove kind of your need to do banding? I mean, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, do you just maybe need to do the banding at the, the, the terminus of these, these uh, trips? No, in that you still need to be able to monitor uh, all stages of the life history. Okay. So we still need to know survivorship. Uh, we still need to know if, are there age and sex differences between that survivorship. And that's uh, you can actually modus adds to that or banding adds to modus because now we can actually follow a male and maybe males have a different migration pattern than females. Uh. Uh, maybe young birds have a different migration pattern. And, and also when we look at uh, dispersal, it might be that a particular species, say of thrush, we have wood thrushes that um, are a, uh, one of those dramatically declining species of which Houston Woods is one of the core breeding areas. Wood thrushes, for a couple of years at the banding station, we got two individuals that we caught on the same day, three years consecutively in the same net, but we never caught them any other time. 
so they had passed through and and so uh these birds once they kind of figure out the, their migration routine frequently do the same thing mm. year after year after year until they die hmm. we are finding that there are a number of species that don't and so if we assumed that everybody acted the same and we're now finding that it might be that females actually disperse and males go back to that or young males go back to where they hatched or females go back this has all sorts of conservation implications uh, and if we just assumed everybody returned to where they hatched, uh, you begin to look at uh, problems, say, population genetics and, and things like that. Uh, so we're learning a ton. The concerning part is we're learning a ton at a time when bird populations are declining so dramatically. Wow. We're almost not learning it fast enough. Hmm. And, and so that's one of the, the kind of sobering parts in all this is there's so much really cool stuff we're finding. But... It's almost out of it, it, it's at a critical time rather than at a time where we had a lot of time to respond to the new information. You said you've been doing this for 20 years, and I know there's that data that shows that that marked decline in bird populations as, as a whole. But what are some things that you've noticed here locally in Houston Woods over the 20 years that you've been doing this that sort of stand out to you? What, one of the things that uh, I, I teach ornithology, and I absolutely love taking novice birders out in the field and kind of introducing them to to this. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, and I've been birding since I was probably four years old. But as a young birder in Cincinnati, first week, first 10 days of May are when many of our neotropical, our long-distance migrants are arriving back from Central America and South America. And I used to go out and to areas like Houston Woods or Spring Grove Cemetery, and I would be overwhelmed by the size of just the number of birds that would be mm. passing through. Now, some of it might be the memory of a nine-year-old going, God, there's a lot. But what I'm finding now is I keep telling my students, oh, I can't wait till the first week of May. Uh, we'll get out. We'll hit areas like Sugar Shack or, or, or group campground at Houston Woods, and I can't wait to see the waves of birds come over. And every year I think, God, I wonder if I missed that wave. Oh. I haven't, I, I, I see there are certainly birds there. I, I can get over 100 species in Houston Woods in a day. But I work hard, and it's ones and twos and fives mm -hmm. and tens. And there might be yellow-rumped warblers in big numbers, but all of the others are just kind of scattered among them. So what I've been feeling in the last five, ten years is this, kind of disappointment where maybe I missed it. Hmm. You know, maybe the peak came through and I wasn't available or it was before a storm and I and and so I think that's what I've been feeling most frequently is I'm working harder to find what used to be easy. Oh. You know, it, and maybe that's the it would be the best of all stories if you were just missing it. Right. You know, that um, one thing I found that as you, as you were talking about this, I I was going I'm thinking about your comments about refueling and also the comments on the lead about, you know, the decline of population. So, so can, can you, you know, reflect a little bit about how these are, are kind of connected or, and what else might be some of the drivers of, of yeah, the decline the, uh, of species? The, the other hat I wear, um, mostly because I have no hair, so I wear lots of hats, <laughs> uh, but the, the other hat I wear is I'm an entomologist. Actually, I'm a trained entomologist. That's where, that's where my degrees are in. And, Insect populations, there was a, a, a big paper that came out uh, that basically, it, it came out in 
on my birthday, actually, uh, five, six years ago. But the paper showed over 27 years of data and 60 or 70 sites in Europe where they had used the same trap in the same area and the same method every year for 27 years, uh, that there was at least a 76% decline in, in total insect biomass, flying oh, insect biomass. Wow. But in summer times, that was closer to 82% loss. Wow. And this gave a number to what we've been seeing uh, in that my students, you know, many of them live up uh, along, they go, they're live in Cleveland or they live up and I say, all right, you know, you drive up to Cleveland, you drive back. I said, there's nothing more annoying than pulling off at a gas station and finding the reservoir for the windshield washer empty. You know, it's just, it's one of my pet peeves, except they have no idea what I'm talking about because they never use the windshield washer because you don't have bugs all over your windshield. And you can go all the way to Cleveland and come back and never have to wash your windshield. So from anecdotal perspective, you're going, well, maybe I just missed them. But now there is data and there have been subsequent papers out that have shown this decline. And the birds that we are losing in large number, our warblers, for instance, are caterpillar feeders mm. uh, in migration. And so we've got all of these birds that are feeding on insects that now we don't have the insect populations. So maybe it doesn't matter what we do from a habitat perspective. Maybe our efforts should be on insect conservation so that they have food when they get to the rest stop rather than worrying about how much breeding ground they have. I mean, it's, it's not logical. You, you do have to have breeding um, space for breeding. But where we're finding... Uh, we, we've been doing a, actually an insect study also at Houston Woods uh, for the last several years. And uh, the students have been weighing biomass and using the same protocols they used uh, for this study. And I have the, the trap used is called a malaise. And a malaise is basically a tent with open sides and a center baffle. So flying insects fly in and they get caught in an alcohol jar at the top. I can... Uh, I used to be able, when I came back in the 80s, I came back during the summer when I was in, in college, I'd come back and spend some summers back here, and I was an entomology major, so I loved collecting back in, in Cincinnati, because I had mostly California insects at the time, and I used to put a malaise trap up at my folks' place out in Claremont County, and I would have to empty a quart jar every day out of the malaise, and so... When I go look at the samples now from Houston Woods, an area that is a protected area that should have the highest diversity and the highest, I can actually count individually the number of insects in the bottom of the jar uh, after a week uh, oh. in a malaise trap. Hmm. And so it's really struck home uh, just what I'm seeing on my windshield or not seeing on my windshield, I'm also not seeing in my jars uh, in areas that are protected. Uh, so that directly then feeds back, so to speak, on the, on the birds that are relying on them. So, so you know, one of the things that I, I, I always like to try to find some hope, yeah. you know, and sort of, and, and part, of, part of finding hope is finding ways to act. So as you know, as you think about you, you know, there's there's you, you've described some of the data that that from ranging from insect biomass to to these bird counts, certain species particularly at high risk and some of their the inputs that are required. Are there things that 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 people can do to 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 react and respond and help support maybe a recovery? 
Yeah, oh, I'm a half full glass kind of guy myself here, and uh, and that's maybe one of the the bright spots in this is a we are finding new data, we are finding new things, we are we might be able to emphasize some of our conservation dollars in more uh, in smaller, more concentrated areas, but one of the biggest things that we can do, and I think being part of a university is kind of the answer to some of that is awareness. And, and not just awareness of people that are 60, 70, 80, but we've got to get kids on board. Uh, we've got to get the younger generations so they appreciate outside, so they care that there is wildflowers and there are things like that. So yes, uh, we, we've, got to, we've got to get them off their phones and off, uh, and, and not binge watching Witcher. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, we, uh, um, but, so, but but there's more than that. There's more than just awareness. There's I mean I'm I'm thinking about the action that the well, that, you know it, Rosemary and I might do in our in our yard. Right. No. And, and I think the the other side of this coin is we we have to change our perception of what beauty is in some fashion. Hmm. When you drive through suburbia, a beautiful lawn is one that has had a ton of chemical put on it. It's weed-free. Uh, the flowers are all non-natives. And when we look at this from a bird or an insect perspective, it's a wasteland. It's a desert. So what we can do from, and, and, and just look at uh, Oxford from Google Earth. It is a giant green patch but if that green patch were actually planted in native flowers, native bushes, native trees, or even a section of each yard had that in it, you could dramatically increase the overall amount of natural habitat that supplies the right caterpillars, that supplies the right flowers, that supplies the right fruits uh, for the native species that are here. And that's something that everybody can do. And it will have a tremendous impact. In addition to that, you have to think critically about things like we certainly need uh, mosquito control periodically for disease control, but we don't need to routinely hose our yards down uh, with insecticides to kill mosquitoes or, or anything else for that matter. If Evaluate how much lawn. So we have five-acre lawns out there. What happens if we had a one-acre lawn around the house and four acres of native habitat that is perceived to be beautiful, not overgrown or, or something uh, along those lines? So I think part of it is changing our perception of beauty. And the other part of it is uh, augmenting what is out there with native plants in particular uh, in your in your lawn and garden uh, and that'll do all of these birds fly over us so it's not like you know it's not like we're trying to attract them here they're flying over us so if there are resources here they're going to stop well, that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories dave thank you so much for being oh, here my today my pleasure thank you Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.